0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. Today's historical event occurred on the 8th of April 1838. And as always, let's have a look and see what else was happening in that year. Well, on January the 21st, the first known report about the lowest temperature on earth is made, indicating minus 60 degrees centigrade or minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit in cuts. On March the 13th, The combination of rain and melting snow causes the Danube River to overflow its banks, washing away villages in western Hungary and inundating the twin cities that become Budapest. More than 150 people are drowned, and Europe's nations come to Hungary's aid to prevent the spread of famine and disease. On June 28th, we see the coronation of Queen Victoria, which takes place in Westminster Abbey in London. On August the 1st, former slaves in Jamaica are freed of their indentures. On August the 6th, the Polytechnic Institution, predecessor of the University of Westminster and Britain's first polytechnic, opens in Regent Street, London. And lastly, on September the 7th, Grace Darling and her father rescue 13 survivors from the Forfisher off-farm islands. But our event, as I said occurred on the 8th of April and starts in Bristol, the Cumberland Basin to be exact, when, as described in the newspapers, seven brave souls venture forth to cross the Atlantic. Word of the Week. Now, considering today's tale has a bit of a seafarer's about it, our word of the week is... Ahoy! Which is a signal word used to call to a ship or boat. The word stems from the Middle English cry hoi, a greeting derived from the Dutch hoi. Now, seafarers used the word ahoy in song well before the world's first recorded use in print. Now picture this, seven adventurous souls grouped at the Great Western's bows, talking excitedly, their hearts beating faster with anticipation. They were on an adventure that would bring them either fame or disappointment, ridicule and maybe even death. They had paid 35 guineas for this privilege. They were the passengers who were sailing from Bristol, on the Great Western, the first steamship built expressly for regular non stop transatlantic travel. Bristol men had made her for £63,000. Bristol money had paid for her. She would either fail hopelessly or she would make Bristol the central port for the ocean going trade. And that was the hopes for her. But to be honest, she did neither. The SS Great Western of 1838 was a wooden-hulled paddle-wheel steamship with four masts, the first steamship purpose-built for crossing the Atlantic, and the initial unit of the Great Western Steamship Company. She was the largest passenger ship in the world from 1837 to 1839, the year the SS British Queen went into service. 20,000 people watched the SS Great Western, a 1,340-ton ship being launched at Wapping Wharf in Bristol Harbour on July 19th, 1837. But she had tried to set sail before, on the 31st of March. That had been a disaster when she narrowly escaped being burnt out. You see, the felt lagging on the boilers in the engine room caught on fire and cleared the stokeholds. If it wasn't for the prompt use of the fire engine, then things might have had more dire consequences. As it is, the chief engineer had to crawl down into the smoke-filled engine room and open the cocks to prevent the boilers blowing up. Around four stokers were so scared by what they saw and fearing for their lives, they got into small boats and left the ship, never to return. As if the fire wasn't enough of a bad omen, another incident happened concerning the designer of the ship, Mr. Isambard Kingdom Brunel himself, who fell 20 feet into the stokehole when the rungs of a charred ladder collapsed. He was seriously, but luckily not fatally, hurt and had to be sent ashore. In the meantime, the ship had been run aground off Lee and remained on Chapman's sand until the tide lifted her. She then... Continued her voyage. The actual damage to the ship wasn't serious, but news of the accident spread, and quite a few of the passengers forfeited their passage money. And that is why only seven courageous ones decided to sail on her. Six of them are now forgotten, and the seventh, Mr. Foster, who was described as a highly talented gentleman of Philadelphia, wrote about his adventures of the outward journey in his journal. Mr Foster and his companions left the Cumberland Basin in Bristol Harbour in a small steamer, described as a... Twaddling little thing. On Saturday, April 7th, 1838, to get to the Great Western, anchored in King Road, the name given to the waters just by Avonmouth. The whole trip to the Great Western was hampered by a gale and driving rain, making their every move more difficult than it need be. The weather was so bad that James Hoskin, who was in command, had decided not to leave until the following day. And so, at midday on the 8th of April, the Great Western was heading off. As Mr. Foster describes, the evening... Found us at the mouth of the Bristol Channel, making our way against a headwind and an ugly sea. The voyage lasted only 15 days and went without incident. The most impressive moments for Mr. Foster being apparently... The stifling horror of seasickness on the third day out and the sighting of a packet ship. Seven days out of Liverpool. On the same day. The appearance of a bouquet of fresh flowers on a cabin table on Wednesday the 11th and the sighting of a school of porpoises.
1: (laughs) Word on the street.
0: Today, let us take a stroll down Hawksworth Drive in BS15, another road named after an important Great Western Railway engineer, Frederick Hawksworth, who was born in 1875 in Swindon. He designed the elegant County Class locomotive in 1947, which had great strength on curves and steeply inclined track. After the nationalisation of the railways in 1949, Hawksworth had to resign from the post of Chief Mechanical Engineer, which had served the GWR or Great Western Railway for over a century, as the work became spread over different departments. The last locomotives rolled out of Swindon just over a decade later. The end of the Great Steam era. On St. George's Day in 1838, the Great Western steamed into New York Harbour, but met with bitter disappointment. Another steamship, the Sirius, had reached New York two hours ahead of her. The Sirius, a little steamship of 703 tonnes, did make history. But it was the Great Western that effectively demonstrated the possibilities of steam on the Atlantic. And it was the Great Western which became a great favourite and afterwards ran regularly for nine seasons. The Great Western had a tremendous reception in New York and 100,000 people turned out in May when she set sail for England again with 62 cabin passengers and 5,555 letters as well as 1,760 newspapers on board. Fourteen days later, she was back in England, and there was no doubt about her success. At a celebration dinner of Bristol citizens two days afterwards, plenty of laurels were handed to her. She had easily made the 10 miles an hour proposed by Brunel, and on her return journey, had only burned 392 tonnes of coal, instead of the 1,480 tonnes estimated by pessimists. Before we go any further, let me tell you a little bit more about the Sirius. She was never built for transatlantic work at all. She was chartered in a hurry by the British and North American Steam Navigation Company formed in 1836 by Junius Smith, an American lawyer, who was trying to hamper the efforts of the Bristol men. At only 703 tons, there were a lot of doubts as to her capabilities. But once the decision was made, there really was no going back and the vessel was prepared for sailing from Cork a few days before the Great Western was advertised to sail from Bristol. The Sirius left Cork on April the 4th, with Lieutenant Richard Roberts in command and arrived in New York Harbor after taking in coal at Sandy Hook on April the 23rd, two hours before the Great Western, and after a voyage full of incident. She had run out of coal and had burnt spars, resin and all sorts of odds and ends in order to keep going and make that deadline. The Sirius made only one more double crossing and was then returned to her owners. After a career on cross-channel work, she was wrecked in 1847. She is usually listed as the first holder of the Blue Ribbon, although the term was not used until decades later the Blue Ribbon being an unofficial accolade given to the passenger liner crossing the Atlantic Ocean in regular service with the record highest average speed. There was originally a claim that the first steamer to cross the Atlantic was the Savannah, which came over from west to east in 1819. But this ship was never a steamship in the ordinary meaning of the word. She was, in fact, a four-rigged packet ship, with a small steam engine fitted to her deck. She was the first to make the trip with the aid of steam machinery, but this wouldn't have given her enough power to carry her across the Atlantic. Her log tells us that out of a passage of four weeks, her engine was not in use for more than four days. Certainly, the Savannah made no material contribution to the progress of steam navigation and doesn't really have any claim to being the first to cross the North Atlantic. Now, during the years 1827 to 1829, a Dutch-owned steam, the Caraco, made more than one passage across the Atlantic. On her first voyage from Rotterdam to Suriname, the West Indies, she took 271 days. The Caraco was a 436-tonne vessel built at Dover, but practically nothing is known about her propelling machinery. Although it is almost certain that this was entirely inadequate for the crossing. Now we have to take a moment to mention HMS Radamanthus, which in April and May of 1833 went from Plymouth to Madeira and then to Barbados. From her log in the public record office, you can see that her engine was in use for about half the voyage. And as this was more or less fair-weather passage, the machinery doubtless proved a service. The Radamanthus was a vessel of about 800 tonnes, and was one of the first steam-driven fighting ships. But the honour of the first crossing of the Atlantic, entirely under steam, must go to the Canadian-built vessel Royal William, which on August 4th, 1833, left Quebec for Gravesend arriving on September the 9th. The Royal William cost about £16,000 to build, and heading the list of 144 subscribers is the name of Samuel Cunard, founder of the famous Cunard line. After her triumphant return from America, the SS Great Western's future looked rosy, but in the end, it was rather sad. By 1845, having regularly crossed between Bristol and New York during every summer, her owners, the Great Western Steamship Company, had fallen into financial difficulties over the SS Great Britain, the first screw-driven iron ship on the Atlantic. The company were disappointed too when the Cunard Line got the mail contract, and in April 1847 they sold the Great Western, to the Royal Mail Steam Packet Company, who ran her between Southampton and the West Indies for nearly ten years. And when they were using her, her average speed was less than eight knots. But it was more than enough for this journey, and she was regarded as one of their ships. She was sold to shipbreakers at the end of 1856, and was broken up at Vauxhall the following year. Through the SS Great Western's memorable voyage, George Pern toiled at the engines, experimenting, checking, calculating and recording data, which would prove invaluable to those who were to carry on the great adventure of transoceanic travel. During the 15 days from Bristol to New York, Perne's greatest worry had been to keep the density of the waters in the boilers as low as possible to prevent crustaceans. Although there was trouble with the blowdown cocks due to an obstruction caused by a pair of canvas trousers which had been left in the boiler, Pern managed to keep the density within the proper limits. But tragedy was ahead. Here are the words from the captain's log describing the arrival of the Great Western at New York.
1: At five, ran up to Pike Street Wharf and moored was cheered enthusiastically by the multitudes of inhabitants that assembled. The chief engineer, Mr George Pean, was severely scolded in the act of blowing off the boilers. Dr Roberts attended immediately. He could be procured and every assistance given.
0: Unfortunately, Pern, whose constitution wasn't that strong to begin with, died. Not long before, though, he had written a letter to Maudley, Sons and Field, the makers of the engine, in which he said...
1: The engines, I am proud to say, have performed even beyond my expectation, which was at all times sanguine. In summing up, the engines are a piece of magnificent perfection. I believe, gentlemen, you are aware of the mental depression I experienced from anxiety to have the engines and all.
0: The letter ended abruptly. It was never finished. Only three weeks before his fatal accident, Hearn had risked his life when the ship caught fire. In the engineer's log for March the 31st, he wrote,
1: The four stoke hole and engine room soon became enveloped in a dense smoke, and the upper part in flames. Thinking it possible the ship might be saved, and that it was important to save the boilers, I crawled down after a strong inhalation of fresh air, and succeeded in putting on a feed plunge and opening all the boiler feed cocks, suffering the engines to work to pump them up, as the steam was generating fast from the flames round the upper part of the boilers.
0: Pern wrote these words at the beginning of the voyage. From them you can form your own opinion of the man and the party played in this momentous undertaking. There's a fine granite obelisk with carvings representing the fury of the elements, fire and water, standing on the banks of the Mersey in Liverpool. It was erected as a memorial to the engine room staff of the Titanic as well as all other men who have died doing their duty in the engine rooms of ships. It bears the inscription the brave do not die their deeds live forever and call upon us to emulate their courage
1: and devotion to duty.
0: Brunel's idea of the great western steamship company really came about as a result of a sudden inspiration. You see, bristol Temple Meads was to be the terminus of the railway from London and was being built at the time, the Great Western Railway. Brunel, the engineer of the railway, then went one step further and thought, why not connect Bristol with New York by steamship? The idea became instantly popular. Brunel could get money out of the shareholders' pockets almost as cleverly as he could plan railways and build bridges. And he was the driving force behind the construction of the Great Western, the Great Britain, and the Great Eastern. Bristol men cooperated with Brunel in the scheme. There were Thomas Richard Guppy, shareholder in the railway, and an able engineer himself. Lieutenant Christopher Claxon, Royal Navy, the energetic harbour master of Bristol, and the shipbuilder William Patterson, known as a man open to conviction and not prejudiced in favour of either quaint or old-fashioned notions in shipbuilding and so the great western steamship company was formed and within a few months on july the 28th 1836 paterson set up the stern post of the great western for which brunel supplied the design and a contract was placed with Mortley sons and field of lambeth on july the 19th 1837 amid stirring scenes the ship was launched at Wapping, bristol harbour a luncheon for 300 people held in her main saloon. Unfortunately, the hopes of making Bristol the main route to America would never come to fruition. The main reason being that the men who backed the initial scheme didn't have enough confidence to build more than one ship, and so when demand rose, they couldn't keep up. Their rivals saw this and rushed to cash in on the success of the Great Western. The moment Samuel Cunard saw what had happened, he rushed and built four ships all alike, all wooden paddlers. But if he had only built one, then Cunard would have failed. As it was, he brought the Atlantic trade to Liverpool, got his boat subsidised and beat off the Bristol Company's tender to carry the mail. Eventually, the Bristol shipowners did build a second vessel. In 1839, while other people were copying their original wisdom, they started to build the SS Great Britain. Instead of making her like the Great Western as possible, they improved on the design. She was longer and had an iron hull instead of wood, a screw propeller instead of paddle wheels, all very progressive and modern, and a very courageous venture. But this experimental ship ran the company into overwhelming debt and was sold for a bargain to ply the trade of a rival port. The Great Britain came before her time, and the heavy dues maintained by the Dock Company really did damage Bristol's commercial position. Also remember that the Great Western was too big to use in the harbour in Bristol, and had to lie in King's Road to discharge and load by means of smaller craft. The Dock Company still, though, exacted their dues of £106 per trip, and much more on cargo.
1: The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride.
0: In the news today, a man from Bradley Stoke was convicted yesterday of stealing herbs from his next-door neighbour's herb garden. The judge said he was living on borrowed time. Back 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 Back
1: Back Back in the day facts.
0: Let's start off with the 20th of May, 1497, when John Cabot set sail from Bristol on his ship the Matthew, looking for a route to the West. Also on the 20th of May, but in 1983, the police released their hit song Every Breath You Take, their fifth UK number one. It topped the UK singles chart for four weeks, and the song also reached the top ten in numerous other countries. On the 21st of May 1894, the Manchester Ship Canal in the UK is officially opened by Queen Victoria, who later knights its designer, Sir Edward Leader Williams. On the 22nd of May 1972, Ceylon adopts a new constitution, becoming a republic and changing its name to Sri Lanka. On the 23rd of May 1934, American bank robbers Bonnie and Clyde are ambushed by police and killed in Bienville Parish, Louisiana. On the 24th of May, 1738, John Wesley is converted, essentially launching the Methodist movement. This day is celebrated annually by Methodists as Alder's Gate Day, and a church service is generally held on the preceding Sunday. On the 25th of May, 1878, Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera HMS Pinafore opens at the Opera Comique in London. And lastly, on the 26th of May 1998, the first National Sorry Day is held in Australia. Reconciliation events are held nationally and attended by over a million people. And so we've come to the end of another show, but don't worry because I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. And today, I'd like to thank these talented folk for all their hard work and for making the stories come to life. This week, we have Joe Wilson and Andrea Reid from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as the lovely Griff. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show is about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.